Hi friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. We kick off our Holy Week with a Palm Sunday message from our Family Life Pastor, the Reverend Jamie Kendrew. We also are encouraging you to go to our website, ccgf.org, so you can see all of the times and locations for our services throughout this Holy Week. Now, here is Pastor Jamie with our Palm Sunday message. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. I had an interesting day yesterday. Um, a lot of you know that my son plays hockey. I'm a hockey coach, and we're, we're really into hockey. And yesterday, we were at a tournament, and we had an interesting interaction. You, we, we have these tournaments that we go to, and you never actually really know what time you're playing um, until maybe sometimes an hour before the game. It's, it's the weirdest little system that they have and how it works. It's very frustrating, actually. But yesterday, we had to show up at the rink at a certain time, and then we were told our game would be an hour later. And so we're watching the game in front of us, and we see, um, we see this coach uh, talking to his team, and we see some kind of disruption on the bench. And then after the game, um, standing along the outside of the rink, when the other team kind of congregates right behind where we're at, and I'm there with a couple of my friends, and we're listening in to something take place behind us when the coach is giving a post-game speech to his team, and they actually won, when all of a sudden a parent comes from around the other side of the rink looking to murder somebody screaming at the top of their lungs, and I'm thinking, oh no, this is a parent from the other team, this is going to be bad. And so I, I elbowed the guy next to me and said, we better be ready to step in. When we turn around to see the guy who's yelling actually has a sweatshirt on of the team that's meeting. And I'm a little perplexed, and then we start hearing in between the swearing and the yelling, um, something about the fact that his kid's feelings were hurt because he didn't get enough time on playing. And there then became this weird exchange between the coach and this parent with all these kids sitting around. And it was just so inappropriate. It was so awkward. It was just so grimy. And what was very clear was, is the expectations that the coach had laid out for the team uh, were very different than the expectations that this parent had of the team. And I think a lot of times in our lives, by the way, be nice to your kids' coaches They're not getting any scholarships today, all right? So just everybody calm down and have fun, all right? But the truth is, as people, one of the things that happens to us a lot of times is we have expectations of what something's supposed to be. In fact, there's a whole crowd of you in here right now saying, Pastor Jamie didn't pray before his sermon. I got you. We have expectations of what we think things are supposed to be. And sometimes the way we think things are supposed to be aren't actually what is best for us. And it's not actually what God intends it to be. You know, that parent was yelling and screaming because their their kid wasn't getting enough playing time. But I found out later their kid had so many penalties that if he got one more penalty, the team was going to be in a lot of trouble and the kid would be ejected from the game. And so the coach was actually trying to protect the kid. But see, the parent had this expectation of their kid being the all-star. And so I ask you this morning, what is your expectations of God? Do you have a realistic view of Jesus? What's interesting to me about Palm Sunday is Jesus came into town like a king. And all these people had expectations of him. But were they fair? Were they right? Were they just? And how much did they hold on to their expectations? 
Do they hold on to their expectations so much that they're going to make an inappropriate scene? Absolutely. So now, let us pray as we jump into our sermon. God, we love you and we thank you. We praise you for this day. We praise you for this holiday, God. This is a holiday that we can celebrate the fact that Jesus came into town riding on a donkey and it was celebrated with shouts of save us, Hosanna. It was celebrated with palm leaves being brought down. And Lord, as we dive into all of that, Lord, there is a very practical message for us in this story, in this lesson, in this truth today. And so, God, as we hear this retelling of Palm Sunday and we're reminded of this day, we pray, God, that you would also convict our hearts to let go of our agenda and to remember that your will is perfect, that your will is good. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to John 12 right now. Um, you can also uh, you know, check out an app on your phone if you want, or you can follow along here on the screen in a minute. But before we dive into our verse, I want to remind us of something that last week we talked about uh, a guy. Do you remember who we talked about? Lazarus. We talked about Lazarus, and we talked about how here was this guy, this friend of Jesus, this friend of the disciples who, who died and then was brought back to life. It's a pretty amazing story. And one of the things that I think I oftentimes miss myself personally when I'm studying Easter is actually how much of a pivotal character, how much of a pivotal person, how much of a reality Lazarus plays in Easter week. Because you see, there's all this stirring about this Jesus guy. He's he's teaching out a line. He's claiming to be the son of God. He's, he's this man who's performing these minor little miracles here and there. And, you know, he's making blind people see. And the skeptics are saying, well, that guy could probably always see. But then this moment happens with a guy named Lazarus, where Lazarus is dead in the tomb for a couple of days. Jesus shows up in the town. Come on out of the grave, Lazarus, as we talked about last week. There's no disputing what took place. There's absolutely no room for anybody to say it was smoke and mirrors. They watched as a dead man of a couple days came back to life and it didn't even smell funny. It just doesn't happen. And so now there's a stir in the city. I'm going to tell you, if Pastor Jared raised somebody from the dead, the church next door would be talking about it. And so what's taking place is the Pharisees are offended. They're angry because of a couple of different things that we'll get into here. But Jesus leaves Bethany for a little while. But it tells us in the Word that he ends up coming back and he's hanging out with with Lazarus and his family. And there's this beautiful moment where one of Lazarus' sisters anoints Jesus with with this, this, it's called nard. It's this perfume. And we read about it all throughout the Gospels. But then, as the rumors begin to grow that Jesus may be coming back to town, that Jesus may be there, you know, a crowd's growing. And I think a lot of times we think the crowd's going simply because of Jesus, but this is like a perfect storm of events that's taking place right now, especially for the Pharisees. Because you see, it's the time of Passover. And in Jerusalem, during this time period, it's estimated, scholars say this, that there was probably about 50,000 people who were residents of Jerusalem. But during the time of Passover, and the few days before Passover, the population would go from 50,000 people to an estimated 120,000 people. 
And so now this little town of Jerusalem has become a tourist trap. There's 120,000 people in town. And guess what they're talking about? This Jesus guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. They're not talking about how great the Pharisees are. They're not talking about their Jewish tradition. They're talking about this new guy on the block. And the Pharisees are angry about it. The leadership's angry about it. The Romans are recognizing, hey, something's taking place here. Because these people who are sometimes scattered around the hillside, because there's so many of them, they can't actually all fit in the city during this time. They're grabbing palm branches. And they're running out to the hillside to meet this guy, Jesus, that's coming in. If you live in a small town of 50,000 and your town's population has just doubled and more than half of the people are now getting excited about something, would you be a little panicked? See, the situation in Jerusalem in this moment in time, in this moment in history, is, is not a calm one. It's kind of chaotic. You know, the, the Roman government's going to be a little uneasy because they're they're severely outnumbered at this moment by the people of Israel. And then the Pharisees and the teachers of law see this this new leader, this new teacher, Jesus, and he's gaining more momentum as the day goes on. And the people of Israel and even the Gentiles in this moment are thinking, this guy's going to come and he's going to liberate us from the Romans. Some people have the mindset that he's going to come and he's going to bring angels' armies with him and he's just going to simply smite all the evil deeds. He's going to liberate us through politics, that he's going to liberate us through this. And people have their own mindset, including some of the disciples, of how Jesus is supposed to be and who he's supposed to be. Do you have in your mind an image of who Jesus is supposed to be? I caution you about having boundaries and rules on who Jesus is. Because he's so much greater and better than anything that we could ever put a box around. We come to our passage today in John 12, verse 12. And it says this. It says, The next great crowd that had come from the Feast of Passover heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Now there's a lot... In those two little things. And the other thing is the fact that Jesus then says, get a donkey and I'm going I'm to ride this donkey into town. And when you hear that, it may not make a whole lot of sense to us today. But when we think about the, the pirates or the, peng- well, the, the penguins or the Steelers winning a championship. Sorry, Pirates fans. <sighs> so close. When we think about them winning championships, what do we do for them when they come home? We have parades, and millions of people, or hundreds of thousands of people, will line the streets of Pittsburgh, and they'll bring out their noisemakers, their terrible towels, and they'll wave them around, and we throw this tremendous triumphant entry for our team, don't we? See, back in this time, that kind of thing took place for the leaders as they came back from war. As they came back into town. And something we, we hear is the, how the Romans would do this, but did you know that the, the, the people of Israel did this as well? The people of Israel did the same thing, but it was done in a different way. They would take these palm branches, which are actually a symbol of of liberation. They're a symbol of hope to the people of Israel. Many of their coins in the day were stamped with the palm branch as a sign of, of loyalty to Israel. It was a sign of rebellion against the Romans. And so the palm branch to the people of Israel is a very sacred uh, thing. It's almost a flag, if you will. 
And so when they grab these palm branches, there's a significant, um, there's a significant symbolism that's taking place when they grab the palm branch. It's a, it's a palm branch that's basically saying, this is our king in whom we're putting hope. And when Jesus rides in on a donkey from the Jewish perspective, he's fulfilling a prophecy that comes out of Zechariah 9.9. Saying that they will be singing Hosanna and he will come riding on a donkey. Gentle. See, when Jesus rides in on a donkey, it's also symbolic for the fact that he's coming in peace. Because a king riding into war rides a horse and a king riding a donkey comes in peace. Jesus is attempting to calm the crowds. He's riding into town in a very uh, ceremonially triumphant way to the Jewish people, but also to the Gentile people. I find it so fascinating that Palm Sunday, the way it takes place, is not missed by the Romans. It's not missed by the Jews. In fact, everybody can relate to it. Everybody can get it. And there's significant little things in the symbolisms that minister to the Gentile, that minister to the Jew. I love the way Jesus teaches. So the branches are a symbol of the hope of Israel. The donkey is a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of gentleness. It's a symbol of, of, of coming in, in, in wanting to see things redeemed. But then you have this word Hosanna. We sang it this morning. The word Hosanna to me is interesting in this account because it literally means the phrase, save us now. It's not a passive phrase. It's not a simple little phrase that says, that a boy, Lord. It is literally a cry for save us now. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us now. Our hope is in you. And I can't help but to wonder when the people in Jerusalem that day are laying their palm branches down as they're coming out in crowds and droves and they're screaming out, Hosanna, save us now. I ask the question, who are they asking to save them? Are they asking the Son of God riding on the donkey to save them? Or are they asking George Patton Jesus to save them? Are they asking political Jesus To save them. And I ask you right now, when you cry out to the Lord, who are you asking to save you? Is it the Jesus that fits your description? Or is it the God of the Bible? You know, we pray this often. We say, God, let our ailment be healed or let our thing be taken care of. And and there's a part of that that we have to be careful of because we have to remember that God's will is perfect and God's plan is sufficient. And, And we have to remember that when we pray, we can't just simply put God in a box and we have to ask him to work in his way. What's happening in Jerusalem today is the people are all over the place with who they say God is. And they politicize him. They manipulate him to be what they want him to be. I look at our culture today and it breaks my heart because we politicize the Bible. We politicize God and we conveniently turn God into something that's more comfortable for us. We perpetrate lies about, well, my God would never do that. Or my God would never do that. Or my God would never allow this to happen. Well, your God may not, but the God of the Bible might. God is love. But God is just. God is righteousness. God is wrathful. We don't like that part of it, but it's the truth. 
He's a jealous God and he desires a relationship with you. And we've got to be very careful when we scream Hosanna that we're screaming Hosanna to God. Not to some therapeutic thing that we've created to make us feel good about our immorality. About our agenda. Politics will not save this nation. Politics will not save you. Only Jesus Christ can do that. I don't care who you voted for, but it shouldn't divide the house of God. It's a shaming how our country has twisted itself and turned on each other over race, over religious stuffs within the Christian church, with over politics. We've beat each other up. We've bullied one another. And the world's watching us. That's the type of thing that leads Jesus coming into town like a king to crucifying him at the end of the week. We get our interpretation of who God's supposed to be, of who Jesus is supposed to be. And then when we discover that we're wrong, instead of saying, Lord, correct us, we say, well, this must be wrong. Or this is archaic. Or this is obsolete. That doesn't matter anymore. When they said that in the Bible, they didn't really mean that. Don't buy into those lies. They welcomed him into town on Palm Sunday like a king. They shouted praises to him. They got palm branches. They were on their knees. And then by the end of the week, the same people were screaming crucify because God did not fit in their box. This is a good message for us today, isn't it, church? We're boxing God into a set of rules that he does not have to obey. He is bigger than than our American dream. He's bigger than our, our entitlement attitude. He's bigger than our victim mindsets that we have today. The only hope we have is in who Jesus is, the gentle king. And I love this because his battle cry wasn't war. His battle cry wasn't kill him. His battle cry wasn't anything other than love God and love others. When Jesus came into town, you know, he came in like a king. Do you know where Jesus went right after the triumphant entry? He went to the temple. He walked into the temple and he flipped over tables and he said, you're making my father's house a den of thieves. Get out of here. He cleansed the temple. He came into town and he began to rebuke the leadership. He began to teach parables as they would ask him questions. There's this incredible section in Matthew where Jesus has a confrontation with the Pharisees, the false leaders of the time, and he tells them, woe to you. You tie up heavy loads and you put them on people's back, and then you make them twice as son of hell as you are. He's talking about their their cultural sensitivities and not adhering to the word of God. When we don't speak truth in love, we are tying up heavy bundles, putting them on people's backs, and we're making them twice the sons of hell as we are. Does that make sense, church? The word of God is truth. The word of God, it speaks truth to us. And God is God. He's not who we make him to be. Jesus gives these seven woes to the Pharisees, and they start asking him more questions. And I love it because all throughout Holy Week, up until that Thursday evening, they're asking Jesus questions, and he owns them. 
They try to trick him into saying to not pay Caesar taxes. They, they try to trick him into condemning himself by twisting scripture. And Jesus absolutely owns the Pharisees all week long. Till finally on about Wednesday, one of the Pharisees says, we just need to stop asking him questions. Because the more we let this guy speak, the dumber we look. And so finally, in their frustration... Their fear was if they tried to arrest Jesus and if they tried to kill him, that the, the out-of-towners, the, the, uh, you know, the visiting team that's in town might stop them. But now this Jesus has gone too far. He's, he's calling us hypocrites. He's calling us broods of vipers. And so finally the Pharisees have had enough of this Jesus speaking against their lies. And they plot to kill him. And did you know when they plot to kill Jesus, they also plotted to kill Lazarus? But talk about a dumb plan. The guy's already beat death once. He's not afraid of it. He's been on the other side of death. But they plan to kill Lazarus just as much as they plan to kill Jesus. And that leads us up to our Thursday night service. And Pastor Jared's going to be talking about this week. But I want to remind us with Palm Sunday that we need to remember who God is. Not who we want him to be, but who he really is. He came riding into town like a king, and now he's condemned. That's a bad week, isn't it? Or is it a good week? Because you see, it's all part of God's plan. God's plan is for Jesus to come And to lay his life down. To surrender himself on the cross. So that you and I could have eternal life. It's a good story. It's a happy story. And I think what we need to remember out of this story is a very truthful and telling um, principle that, that God is not an MTO machine. He does not submit to your will. We submit to his will. And we need to be very careful and cautious as Christians as to creating a box around him. Because when we do that, we're really harming ourselves. When we do that, we're telling God that he's not good enough or he's too good and we can never achieve that. And, and, and it destroys us as people. I know I keep using this illustration, but it keeps coming up. And, and that's God has set a standard here. Our standard's here. God doesn't come down to our standard. We raise to his standard. I wish we could all memorize that. We are called to righteousness. We are called to holiness. We are called to goodness. We're called to worship him. And so when you bring your palm branch, is your hope really in the Lord? Or is your hope in the stuff that God can do? When you bow before him and scream, Hosanna, are you really saying, God, save me in the way that you see fit? Or are you saying, God, you have to do it this way? There's a pastoral illustration that people use all the time, and I'm sure most of you have heard it. But there's a man hanging on a cliff, and he prays for God to help him, and a rope drops down, and the guy says, hey, climb up. He says, no, I'm waiting on God to help me, and then a helicopter flies by, and He says, no, I'm waiting on God to help me. And then finally the man falls and dies and goes to heaven. He said, God, why didn't you help me? And he said, I tried a couple of different times, but you wouldn't take the help. Does it have to happen our way? 
Or can you submit to what God is doing in your life? Are you praying in such a way that you can recognize that it's God's will in your life? Not everybody on Palm Sunday screamed crucify on Friday. Did you know that? Some were there for the right reasons. Some were there with pure motives. Even Romans and even Pharisees got it. And they understood that when the king came riding into town, he was bringing a very different message of grace, love, and mercy. Not of war, condemnations, and and, and just punishment. You know, the word of God tells us that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it and to destroy it. He came into the world to set us free. That's not to say that some of us won't be condemned. Some of us will be destroyed. But God's making that invitation to all of us this morning. And so as we welcome him in this week, as we sing Hosanna and as we cry out songs of praise, are you genuinely crying out to God? Or are you crying out to something that you have fabricated? I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to ask God right now this question. Lord, have I fabricated an opinion of you simply out of my hurts, out of my wants, and out of my needs? And if I have, Lord, convict me now. It's not our desire to worship a false version of you, a political version of you, a warmongering version of you, a a ungracious version of you, an unrighteous version of you, an unwrathful version of you, God. We pray that you would help us to see you for who you are, Lord. And Right now, we pray as a congregation together that you will speak your will to our lives. Forgive us, Lord. May we sing Hosanna all week long. May we sing Hosanna on Friday and surely on Sunday. We pray, Lord, that you would continually remind us That your word is truth. And that your word is the way that we are to to live and to be obedient to you in, in reading it and studying it and understanding, God, that you are great, you are love, and you are perfect, and your will is good, as bad as it may seem for us sometimes. Lord, help us to remember that we have won a victory and help us to not be discontented because maybe our playing time wasn't what we thought it should have been. Help us, God, to remember that because of what you did on Easter, the victory has already been won. We can Monday morning quarterback this thing. The day is long. We know that we've won. We know that you're good. We know that you rose from the dead. And just as Lazarus was not afraid of the Pharisees, God, we do not have to fear death. We do not have to fear this earth. 
And so God, remind us of that and help us to have faith in you. Help us in those areas where maybe we struggle with what you say, God. We pray that you would convict our hearts to trust you when we disagree with you. But Lord, ultimately we know that you are right. The Pharisees, they knew you were right. And because they didn't want to change their lifestyle, they tried to kill you. Help us to not be that, Lord. Help us to seek your will. Help us to truly say Hosanna. And help us to lay our palm branches at your feet because our hope is only found in you.